Hello, my name is Bob Adams. I go to the 8.30 and the 6 o'clock service and uh, I'm about to read the Bible, uh, Isaiah 45, verses 11 to 25. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will re rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans they will come over to you and they will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you saying, Surely God is with you. There is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Saviour of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from other nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a Saviour, there is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, In the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. G'day everyone, I'm Ken and today we're continuing our look at the book of Isaiah. So far in our series we've seen that God has good news for his people. Though they will be punished with exile, God has a message of comfort that the exile will end and he will bring his people back to the promised land. Last week we heard a word to the weary and a word to the world with implications for us. You might have seen Mark's quote on Facebook this week that, that so clearly points forward to Jesus. 
the servant won't give up. He's empowered by God's spirit so he can perfectly bring the hope that we need. It's a great encouragement. And this week we're going to hear further claims from God about his role as saviour. And so as always, we need God's help in being able to understand and respond rightly to his word. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And we ask now that you would open our ears to be able to hear what you're saying, that you'd work in us by your spirit, enabling us to respond rightly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last little while, my family and I have all become regular listeners of audiobooks, whether going for a long car trip, doing chores around the house or going out to exercise. We download books beforehand and listen as we're doing other things. What quickly becomes obvious is that a good reader has the ability to, to bring a story to life. Those who've become my favourite storytellers use different voices for different characters. It makes it obvious who is speaking and draws you into the story. One of the books that I've been listening to recently is Isaiah, read by David Suchet, a well-known English actor. His animated reading expresses and emphasises emotions bringing the chapters to life. If you know him, you know that he always speaks with a deep voice. But when reading Isaiah, he drops his voice down even lower when he's speaking God's words. I've really enjoyed it, and yet one of the frustrations for all of us reading or even listening to the book of Isaiah is that we don't always know who is speaking. Sometimes it is made super clear. So, for example, in our passage that was just read, verses 11, 14 and 18, declare explicitly, this is what the Lord says. We're left in no doubt that it is God who is speaking. But at other times, we're not so sure when someone finishes speaking and somebody else begins. So the end of verse 14, for example, is clearly the voice of foreigners who have come to Israel, recognising that Israel's God is the only God. But does their speech end at the end of verse 14? Or do foreigners continue speaking right through verse 15? In the original, there are no quotation marks to tell us. While not knowing can be confusing or even frustrating, an even bigger issue is, what are we to do? if an unidentified voice expresses something that contradicts God's clear voice. The experience of competing or contradictory voices is very familiar to all of us. Politicians claim that their perspective is the only sane one and the other side must be crazy to suggest that alternate policy. If you're getting health advice, rarely, if ever, is there only one option that is universally accepted as the right way to go by a computer, a car, or even deodorant, and you'll be bombarded with competing voices all claiming to be the sole voice of reason. And if we do listen to the wrong voice and, and make a dud choice of any of these issues, it may result in inconvenience or a financial cost. Choose the wrong health advice and you may remain unwell or in pain. But how do we make sure that we aren't misled on the biggest issue of all? How can we know who speaks the truth about salvation? That's the heart of the issue in today's passage. Who speaks the truth about salvation? 
And it's answered in three parts. In verses 11 to 15, God confronts the doubters. In verses 16 to 21, God confronts the idolaters. And finally, in verses 22 to 25, God declares that he is the only saviour. So let's look at the first part. God confronts the doubters. Between last Sunday and today, we've fast-forwarded through a few chapters. If you were at home group or are doing the questions yourself, you will have looked this past week at the passage just before the one that was read for us. It introduces Cyrus, the name of a man. We know from history that Cyrus was the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. He defeated Babylon and set the exiles free over 500 years before Jesus' birth. But long before Cyrus did this, Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would provide salvation for God's people, that Cyrus would literally be God's shepherd and Messiah. Now, they're pretty surprising titles for us who are used to Jesus being the Messiah and the Good Shepherd. But recognise that long before these titles were used of Jesus, they were used for the prophets, priests and kings of Israel. Even so, to suggest that Cyrus could be God's anointed, used by God to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, was evidently unbelievable. Look at verse 11. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children and give me orders about the work of my hands? Now, I take this to mean that when God announced Cyrus as saviour, people doubted. They questioned the wisdom or the rightness of what God said he was going to do. And God responds to them with a statement that he is the Holy One, the creator of all things. Now, obviously, none of this is new information. The point that God is creator was, was way, way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that he is holy has been the repeating chorus throughout Isaiah. But the new implication that God draws from these facts is that because he is the creator of all, he can choose how he wants to save. And as he raises Cyrus up to save his people, it will be consistent with his righteousness. Now, it may not seem to us such a big deal that God would use a foreigner to set free the exiled Jews to allow them to return to Jerusalem. But up until this point in history, the only way that God's people had ever been saved was for an Israelite to lead Israel in beating their enemy. Moses led Israel to defeat enemies outside of the Promised Land. Joshua led Israel in destroying the Canaanites within the land. And so it followed that the natural expectation for those in exile in Babylon was that God would raise up another homegrown rescuer like a Gideon or a Samson or a David who would go into battle, defeat their enemy and set God's people free. It's a logical conclusion to recognise that, that what God has done in the past, he will do again. It fits with the frequent biblical claim that, that God doesn't change. And the Israelites should also have remembered that Deuteronomy insists that the ruler of God's people must not be a foreigner. So everything seemed to suggest that Cyrus wasn't able to save God's people. But God declares that Cyrus will defeat the Babylonians and Cyrus will set God's people free. Verse 13, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or a reward, says the Lord Almighty. The Almighty is able and he has decided 
that according to his righteous ways, this is how he's going to save his people. It had never happened before. But to a people being threatened with exile or, or living right in the midst of it, God says, this is what I'm going to do. And at this point, we have to give credit where credit is due. God's people were right to reflect on the past. It's what we should do. In fact, it's what we are doing by studying the book of Isaiah. Slowing down to reflect on the biblical record of what God has done in the past gives us the clearest indicator of what he is doing in the present and what he will do in the future. But God insists that the return from exile was going to be even better than the exodus from Egypt. When Israel left Egypt, God said that part of the reason was in order that Pharaoh would know that Yahweh alone is God. Pharaoh, by his actions, showed that he never accepted this fact. But unlike the Exodus, this time foreigners will get it. In verse 14, that I mentioned earlier, the Sabaeans, or possibly three nations, including Egypt, all exclaim, Surely God is with you! And there is no other, there is no other God! Though God's means are surprising, he knows exactly what he is doing. By using Cyrus to save his people, not only his own people, but the nations will acknowledge that there is only one God. It was an extraordinary claim. It is an extraordinary claim, which makes verse 15 harder to pin down. Truly you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and saviour of Israel. Now this statement may be the foreigners continuing their, their surprise admission about God. As nations that were all used to physical idols, their normal was to have gods that can be seen. But the one true God is not visible. And yet through seeing God's actions in his use of Cyrus, it makes them realise that God has always been the powerful rescuer, always working behind the scenes. It was God, not Moses, who enabled Israel to escape from Egypt. It was God who miraculously enabled the walls of Jericho to fall, who enabled a shepherd boy to defeat a giant warrior. If that is the point, then God's hiddenness in verse 15 is a true statement. But from another perspective, this could be a continuation of the doubters calling into question what God is doing, or better, not doing. Because Israel in exile faced a situation which possibly feels quite familiar to our own. God is recorded in biblical history as a powerful God who acts to save. But Isaiah anticipates the exile's bitter complaint that God wasn't fixing their situation. To them, the God of the present seems to be sitting on his hands. God saved in the past, but where is he now? He's hiding. And it's not hard to imagine these kind of doubts being expressed because the same kind of things are still being said today. If God is so strong, well, why doesn't he end all war? If God is able to heal, then why won't he heal my friend, my relative, me? Where is God in the midst of COVID? Why isn't he saving us? So whether you're a Jew in Jerusalem facing a military siege, someone taken into exile in Babylon, or an Aussie in 2020, it is easy to look at life and conclude that God doesn't care. Your situation may even make you wonder if maybe God's not able. Maybe those past salvations weren't really his doing at all. Maybe they were just flukes. Maybe the historian who wrote the Bible wanted to believe those things and so spun it that way, but he was just cherry-picking facts to back up his mistaken belief. It's amazing how something written more than two and a half thousand years ago 
echoes such modern wisdom, isn't it? Especially when we're in the middle of a difficult situation, it can be so much harder to see what God is doing. And too often we can conclude that tough times and difficulties mean that God's not at work and he's not going to save us. If someone listened in on your thoughts or on mine, would they hear a doubter or someone that trusts no matter what the circumstances? In my life, I've been so encouraged by a number of Christians facing life-threatening illnesses who continue to trust in God. And then I turn around and, and doubt him over little inconveniences. Is God's voice here encouraging you to keep trusting? Or is it perhaps challenging you to begin trusting, to stretch your trust to even higher levels? Hopefully that thought should make us slower to ignore the next section in which God confronts the idolaters. Because I think the most likely reaction as 21st century Australians is to assume that verses 16 to 22 don't apply to us. Verse 16, all the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. Idols, we believe, are those shiny statues on someone's shelf or placed in a shrine, the, the tangible objects of worship of other religions. Something I'm confident few, if any, people listening to the, or watching this will have in their homes. And so we might assume that we can just skim over this next section. At first glance, Isaiah's words confirm that idolatry is a problem for the nations, verse 20, not God's people. The idol makers, verse 16, will be disgraced, but Israel, verse 17, will be saved with an everlasting salvation. So perhaps, like chapter 40, this is more good news for God's people. But before we get too comfortable, we need to take note that Isaiah is scathing of his target and not very politically correct either. He ridicules the inability of the idols to save. He suggests that the idols all get together and collectively try to come up with a statement of what is going to happen in the future. He taunts them because God alone exists, verse 21, and therefore he alone can declare what will happen. This clarifies that prophecy is not guessing correctly what will happen in the future. It's a declaration made possible because God determines what happens in the future. This is one of those areas in which we are so different from God. We make plans and, and do things in the hope that it will pay off in the future. But for us, there are no guarantees. We plant a seed, water and fertilise it in the hope that it will produce a crop. We study hard and prepare our resume, hoping to get a good job. Many times it does work out, but not always. Perhaps a bug eats our seedling or someone applies for the job who is more qualified than we are. We do what we can, but there are always things outside of our control. But God doesn't do things merely with the hope that they will work out. There is nothing that's outside of his control. That's part of what it means that he is sovereign. He alone knows the future because he alone controls the future. And so his prophets can speak as they do because God directs what will happen. Which gets to the heart of why idolatry is so bad. Earlier in the book, Isaiah identifies idolatry as the sin that results in the exile. And so idolatry was not just the mistake of foreigners. 
Idolatry is also when God's people stop trusting in the one in control of all things and place their trust in something vastly inferior. When we trade in our chainsaw for a pocket knife or exchange our smartphone for a carrier pigeon. Far worse than any thoughtless exchange, idolatry is a, a downgrade from the one who never fails to something that never succeeds. Now again, this contrast will be developed in even more detail in the coming chapters. But already we see that idolatry by definition is putting your trust in something other than God. And it's really easy to point out the faults of others and poke fun at what we consider to be foolishness. As many of you know, my family lived in Thailand for many years and we saw exactly what verse 20 describes. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood. Once a year, all over the country, the idols are literally taken out of their shrines and carried about the town as part of the New Year festival. Statues are celebrated and honoured, carried on the back of utes or on people's shoulders. It's a symbol that the idols are the source of blessing to this place. And it's easy for us to limit the rebuke of these verses to such obvious reliance on objects that can be seen and touched. But what about the things that we trust in to secure our future, our education and our investments, our political and health systems, our ability to work hard and make sacrifices for the future? We may not be able to put the thing we trust in on a shelf, but we are just as prone to trust in something other than God. We even celebrate our independence in song. I did it my way. We look up to those who overcome adversity and are self-made. The heroes of movies and of sport are the ones who can find the resources within themselves to beat the opposition. Even the goal of parenting is often to make our kids independent. When it comes to religion, many think that they can just tally up all the good things that they've done. While we may not worship a statue on a shelf or in a shrine, the Western world is frequently guilty of self-reliance rather than reliance on God. And so we are in just as much danger of idolatry as a Buddhist, a Hindu or an Israelite. The things that we place our trust in might seem more sophisticated and more appropriate to us, but idolatry in Isaiah is the inevitable outcome when we don't see God as the provider of all we need. If we don't trust completely in God, we'll end up trusting in something else. It's an outcome that shows itself over and over again. We are designed to worship, and if we don't worship, God will worship something else. And so, rather than a section to skip over, we instead are confronted in these verses with an issue that we all need to spend time reflecting on. What do my actions reveal about who or what I trust in? Am I noticeably different from those around me? Or is my trust in God so well hidden that nobody even notices it? Our trust in ourselves is clearly an insult to God and just as doomed to failure as any other form of idolatry or false religion as the final section goes on to show. In verses 22, ooh, sorry, I've skipped. In verses 22 to 25, God declares that he is the only saviour. While the book of Isaiah begins with a statement that it is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the benefits for all the earth are never far from centre stage. 
perhaps more clearly and more frequently than any other Old Testament book, the end goal of God's plan is shown to be the salvation of people from every nation. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This declaration is far more than a boast, wishful thinking or, or hoping for the best. The necessary implication of the truth that there is only one God is that people from all nations can only be saved by him. Idolatry isn't criticised because God is disappointed to not be the object of our worship, as if there was a popularity contest among the religions, each God seeking to win the title. No, God is pointing out the implications of a truth that we are all prone to ignore. Trust in anything other than God is doomed to disappoint. And so God declares that he is the only saviour. Verse 23, by myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity. God confirms the certainty of his declaration with an oath. God declares that in the end, every knee will bow before him. And we shouldn't take this claim as a threat. It's actually an incredible promise. Anyone, no matter where they are from, no, no matter what we have trusted in before, if we turn to God, he's willing to save. It's so incredible, so universal that we can almost forget that we're in the Old Testament. But it shows us that this has always been God's plan. It's so similar and yet so different from the voices we're used to hearing. Leaders make boasts and promises about all they will achieve. We tell ourselves that if I just do X, then Y is bound to occur. But God declares that in the end there will be no, no doubters and no idolaters. He alone is able to save and he welcomes anyone who will humble themselves and trust in him alone. The Reformation took place in the 1600s and is often summarised as the rediscovery of salvation by faith alone. But we see here that exactly the same thing was needed two and a half thousand years earlier. And our perpetual fault to trust in something other than God remains a danger whether you're not a Christian or whether you've been following Jesus your whole life. We began with the question, who speaks the truth about salvation? Isaiah's answer is God alone. But when Isaiah emphasises that God speaks, it is more than simply an indicator of who is doing the talking. It's a claim to be the unique voice of truth. In our age of information overload, we're confronted with so many competing voices, all claiming to be right. Many give fine-sounding arguments. Some are just loud, insisting on their contradiction of God's claim. We hear over and over that there are many ways to God and we just need to choose the one that works for us. Other voices declare that God is just imagined and the best way to fix things is with better education or better environmental policies. But I think that Israel's doubt and idolatry stand as strong warnings to us. It's clearly very easy when we don't understand what is going on, to slip into doubting God. There's a massive explosion in Beirut and, and our natural response is to ask why. Or a baby is born with a health condition and it doesn't seem right or fair. We know that God is in control and we put two and two together and begin to doubt his goodness. I think that trusting God in our modern world is much more complicated than many people accept it or portray it to be. 
take our interaction with medicine and science. We see the cults reject blood transfusions and medicine and rightly reject that thinking as dangerous. And yet when we are sick, it's easy to go and see the doctor without giving any thought to our great physician. We want to express our trust in God. But does that really mean we need to ignore the best medical advice regarding masks or what gatherings are appropriate? Take finances. We can hang on every word of the financial advisor and blissfully ignore any claims that the Bible makes on our credit cards. Now that could be taken as a rebuke, but my point is that it's not simple to identify when God's people slip from trusting in God to starting to put their trust in something else. And so if we are going to avoid being swayed by the, the voice of doubt or the, the lure of alternate things to trust in, we will have to do what is needed to filter out the noise of competing claims and see in God the claim to be uniquely capable and willing to save. And so I think that the biggest danger is simply to be distracted. As I said at the start, listening to my audiobooks, I do that while I'm doing other things. And no matter how riveting the reader is, I've found at times that the words do go in one ear and out the other. I've had the words playing directly into my ears, but my mind was on something else. And so I've had to rewind to really listen and catch what was being said. Perhaps now more than ever, we love to multitask and to, to use our time efficiently. We can download this sermon and take it on our run, log into our home group online and get some emails done at the same time. And in some cases, that can be a good thing to do. I think that listening to the Bible or a, a good podcast while doing your daily commute or hanging out the washing is a great option that is now available to us. But there is also a danger if we're not careful that we will be distracted. That by squeezing in our time with God alongside other things, we can tick the box of listening to God's word and yet we haven't actually done what is necessary to allow God's word to impact us as it should. Many years after Isaiah, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And unlike the shepherds of, like Cyrus or the ones we're most familiar with in Australia that, that drive their sheep where they should go with dogs and horses chasing up behind, Jesus was talking about a gentle shepherd that knows his sheep individually. He said that his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Are we taking the time? making the space to know his voice? Are we in such regular, close communication with Jesus that any pretenders that, that try to sound like Jesus, that, that make claims about salvation, are quickly dismissed as phonies? If we're not deliberate in listening to God's voice, then the competing voices will drown his out. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're a good shepherd. Uh, that gently guides us and yet speaks to us regularly. I pray that you would enable us to carve out the time that's needed, to, to give the attention that's required, to actually focus in on your word, to listen to you, to speak with you regularly, so that you would be bringing about the changes in our lives that need to take place, that we would be people that don't doubt or have idols, but fully trust in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.